Hey everybody, Jordan here, your favorite co-host and editor of Brigham Young Money, here to give you a bit of a preface to this episode. We originally recorded this last month as a bonus episode for all of you out there, but with the Utah Jazz Scholarship controversy and the George Floyd murder trial and the entire discourse surrounding those two, it felt like the perfect time to release this episode. Anyway, a bit of a content warning, this episode will hit on the topic of racism a lot. And if, and if you were a bit overwhelmed by all that, and honestly, who could blame you? Feel free to skip this one. Once again, thank you for all of your support. We really love doing this, and we will keep going as long as you all loved it, love it too. So, enjoy. you guys i want you to know that actions speak a lot louder than words right now jordan you can hear the virgin in his voice i couldn't contain my excitement no byu what would i do had you rejected me probably sigh then byu idaho it would be not to strike insulting chords their potatoes could win this is just to get in the mood for uh horrific racism so in 1875 it was started by some guys looking to this man hasn't had pussy since pussy had him right in provo which then was uncharted BYU, I'm telling you, is a world-class university. BYU, my dreams have come true. I'm just so excited. Like okay, can't do any more of that. What's up? That hey, man dude. is the fucking human form of khakis. I just want to get you, like, it's like singing off-key to, like, dogs or something like that. I just want to get you in, like, the right mindset just to get ready for all this. I think I'm ready. Are I'm you, not sure. Are you? Are you I sure? I don't know. I have no idea what to expect. <laughs> I'm in a permanent state of rage always. So this is just homeostasis for me. Sweet. I love it. How are you doing, That's fellas? Fine. I'm good. We should, uh, should we just go ahead and get started? Sure. We might as well. Well, okay. That, that, that sounds good to me. It's Brigham Young Money. We're back here on a lovely Monday evening after, um, a weekend where I got to see both of you in person. So that was, that oh, was lovely. So good. Yeah. And we all got shots. It feels good. I'm yes. getting mine tomorrow. Nice. Yes. So there's first round of vaccines going around and also had a little outdoor bar get together uh, on Friday Eve. And it was it was delightful and lovely and um, was warm for the first part of the evening and then got colder. But we were uh, it was delightful. Uh, I and so I loved many tater tots. <laughs> Greg ate multiple trash plates. So many tater tots. It was they were good. I mean, they were so good. Idaho has to be good for something, and that's potatoes. So, and you treated us well. Oh, sure man. did. Well, today we have got um, a slightly different episode. Um, 
you know, there's been a lot of talk around here about Brigham Young University. And so we assigned our local grad student to uh, to take us down a little journey today about BYU. And um, Jordan's going to Jordan's going to teach Greg and me some things that we may not have known that, you know, Greg and I both think of BYU as this high upstanding university with the highest of um of morals and demonstrated equality, but I feel like Jordan might be, you know, ruining that for us today. Oh, well, I wouldn't say I'm ruining that. It depends on your outlook on life. Let's just go with that. Okay. Fair enough. Well, Jordan, go ahead and take it away. Let's go. All right. So what we're going to be talking about today is racialized protests around BYU in the 1960s and seventies. So not necessarily a fun topic by any stretch of the imagination, especially around BYU, but it gets pretty interesting. So let's just start from the beginning. Um, why did people consider BYU to be racist? Let's just take it from the top. 1852, sure. Brigham Young announced that black men would not be bestowed with the priesthood within the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, meaning that they would never be able to hold church office or reach the highest levels of exaltation within the church. Let me count the ways. <laughs> yeah so not starting with a good point dude. It's also because utah was like a slave territory and obviously just didn't really like you know did not treat black people well right this is like the yankees leading off with jeter mm -hmm. um <laughs> let's fast forward a century because we're not gonna go over the entirety of like the history of mormonism in utah just because like good lord there's too much to cover we did that a lot in our last episode with uh, Joe Kasabian with Lions Led by Donkeys. Should be coming out any day now. You'll, you'll enjoy it. Yeah. If you're a big fan of massacres, then I uh, highly suggest Jesus. doing some research. <laughs> yeah. That's no massacres here, though. Just sad, sad, essentially apartheid style uh, university. So. Let's move on. Perfect. Also, I should say that there's going to be a lot of allegedly's and um, contentions and parody redacted. Yeah, we're just going to go with this up front, too, just because to make sure we're not going to cut up in any sort of lawsuit or That's anything fine. like that. This is a parody podcast, and all of this is conjecture and um, purely opinion and not reflective of the U.S. Army or this is actually a story. Else. So none of these people I'm going to name are actually real. They're all characters in this play I've constructed by myself and no way are actual like church or university officials from the 1960s or seventies. Okay. <laughs> moving on. That Jordan came up with, I sure did <laughs> all a, in my mind palace <laughs> out of a top hat <laughs> with a couple of rocks. He found in the <laughs> vacant lot next to his house. Oh my God. Okay. So let's get to the fun part. Sure. Okay, not fun part. This is not fun. I am not. I am not uh, endorsing. No one's enjoying this. Any of these things. Already redacted. Even if they were true, which they're not. So let's just move on. Uh, sure. BYU in the 1950s was a place untouched by the civil rights movement for the most part. There wasn't really a whole lot going on with the civil rights movement in Utah through the 50s, especially at BYU in Utah County, because one, there was just no black people there. Can't and, imagine why. We're gonna get there. Um, but as the school entered the 1960s, they would face new waves of protests and upheaval due to the climate at BYU, especially towards race relations and the changing wave of campus culture. But it would face it in no more direct way than through athletics at BYU. So, wait, just to be clear, the protests during the 60s were happening the opposite direction as you might as uh, the rest of 
parts of this country? No, they just weren't happening. Okay. Got like, it. Yeah, the churches like did not talk about race at all. And for obvious reasons, because it's a very sore spot. Um, let's start off with the first one. January 1960, the Harlem Globe Globetrotters perform at the George A. Smith Fieldhouse on the campus of BYU. Following the performance, the Board of Trustees for BYU decides that the Globetrotters will never be welcome back at BYU. <laughs> Jesus. What? What? All you that hippity uh, hop. Those uh those boys over there, they uh they play a little <laughs> bit too uh above the rim for my style. Mm-hmm. That reminds me of 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 uh the movie Semi Pro when they do an alley oop and they're like the ref just calls a foul because it's like egregious <laughs> and like they don't know what it is. That's like that's gotta be illegal. They're not supposed to fly like, through the air like that i'm sorry i don't know what just happened a very unusual series of moves just made the ball go in yeah i don't know why dick but i just got an erection like you could have told me that's a dave Chappelle sketch oh my god honestly remember remember when uh (laughs) the harlem globetrotters went to this like all white town and they were never asked back and i would have been like oh yeah yeah i remember that episode that was like 2002 right I'm just like imagining like, cause the board of trustees are all church leaders too. Like, like Harold B. Lee is one of like the major board of trustees at this point too. So I'm just imagining him like watching Scooby-Doo as they meet the Globetrotters and him just getting increasingly angry through the episode. God, honestly, how can you tough. hate the Globetrotters? They're like the funnest I, people on the planet. I literally have no idea. Cause your entire like personality is the Washington generals. The games aren't even real. <laughs> like the referees are are paid off or something. They're not playing a real basketball game. Uh, sometimes they lose though. Yeah, sometimes like, they've they lost a couple. They've times. lost like four times to the Generals, which is just the saddest thing ever. Like, how do you lose to a team you're supposed to win every single time? <laughs> it's designed. To, yeah. Well. All right. Know, ask the you could ask the British how they lost to the American generals. Yeah, I was gonna say it definitely feels like an American uh, revolutionary tale that uh, generals winning every once in a while. But anyway, continue. Yeah, the Washington generals got to win every now and then. All right. So a lot of my sources for this too are one of them I came from was from Gary Bergera who uh, wrote for the Utah Historical Quarterly, a very long uh, essay on pretty much all of this as well. Then I just grabbed a bunch of like supplemental sources too. Like it's just. Tons and tons. So Gary Bergera in uh, l- writes in this uh, article too, that um, in late 1960, Wilkinson had informed a few trustees that a colored boy on the campus had been a candidate for the vice presidency of the class and received a very large vote and quote, the trustees were very much concerned. In fact, Wilkinson, by the way, president of BYU, Ernest Wilkinson, who by the way is a psychopath in his own right, allegedly, um, recording his diary that Harold B. Lee, an influential, influential LDS apostle and future prophet of the church, had told him that, quote, if a granddaughter of mine should ever go to BYU and become engaged to a colored boy there, I would hold you responsible. I'm just going to let that sink in huh. for a second. Lovely. Uh, Alma, chapter 14, verse 88. <laughs> yep. uh, Wilkinson retorted that Lee should hold himself responsible because he was one of the members of the board of trustees that permitted the present policy regarding the admission of blacks. That, oh my God. <laughs> that if, he, if it was not right, he ought to change it. All three trustees present for the exchange favored barring colored students from BYU. This was oh 1961. They're literally getting in a, in a fight over whose fault it is if someone's daughter ends up dating a black guy. And then they're like, I guess the only solution is to ban black people from going to the school. 
Fucking gross. Yep. Don't don't hate the players, boys. Hate the game. Oh, God. Early the next year, and evidently for the first time ever, trustees went on record at a, as officially encouraging Negro students to attend other universities, end quote. So, we're starting off great, aren't we? Yeah, this is, this is we're firing on all, all cylinders right now. So, now we're starting to get into like the, getting like to where athletics comes into a lot. February 1961, during a basketball game against Utah State, a fight broke out between players on both BYU and Utah State side. BYU President Ernest Wilkinson commented, quote, this colored player by the name of Haney came up and when one of our players was standing talking to others, completely unguarded, swung at him and hit him square in the mouth. And because BYU is still the only white team in Utah, we are immediately accused of being anti-colored. Indeed, oh, one boy. of the professors of USU said it was too bad that we had to draw the color line. That's really unfortunate for them that they had to do that. Yeah, it's, it's real. Like someone held a gun to Stan Watt's head and made him like recruit nothing but white players. I fucking hate the repercussions of my own actions. Oh. Me reaping, me sowing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so up until 1968, there were sporadic things, but nothing too major too. But the UTEP track protest was one of the things that really started to kick things off. And in April 1968, it was a few days after Martin Luther King had been assassinated and UTEP had a scheduled track meet with BYU. Several members of the UTEP track team refused to travel to Provo to compete at BYU. Um, the rudders, including the holder for the record for the longest long jump in Olympic history, Bob Beeman was on this UTEP team they went to their coach about skipping the BYU meet. All of them were immediately kicked off the team for the stand. Uh, another quote from another uh, track meet there. There were nine or 11 of us, and we decided that we didn't want to run against BYU. We had boycotted BYU before. The black women had stopped the track meet at Kid Field with BYU. We met, and we decided that we did not want to go to Provo and didn't want to run against them because they, the Mormons, thought we were inferior, disciples of the devil. And Martin Luther King had just been assassinated. That didn't help at all. We thought we needed time to process all of this. The country was in turmoil. The country was in mourning. Black seas were burning, etc. So all these players, all these uh, runners for UTEP decided we're going to skip this. We don't want to go to BYU. Everything is kind of going crazy right now because there's riots in almost every city right now, too, especially right after Martin Luther King was assassinated. We're not going to go to a place that we believe is a white supremacist stronghold. So they don't. And what you're going to find too, a lot of these protests are that they're also protesting like the racist treatment at their own schools as well. Like all the runners that were kicked off of UTEP team also talked about how their coach and coaches on the track team used to use the N word a lot, used to disparage them a lot. So it kind of goes without saying that like they're just trying to exert their own rights in this regard. So fun. In Texas, yeah. I just can't imagine. Yeah. El Paso seems like a good place, right? <laughs> UTEP President Joseph Ray wrote to BYU President Ernest Wilkinson and said, quote, without any suggestion at all of trying to run your business, I think your institution would, will be a thorn in the side of the Western Athletic Conference until such a time as you recruit at least a token Negro athlete. Until you do, all explanations that the charges are not true will not carry the ring of conviction. President Wilkinson responded by saying, may I inform you that all Negroes who apply for admission and can meet the academic standards are admitted. So fun fact about that. There had only been a few students up at that point who had reached BYU. Uh, first was the first student was about 1960, same time we were having a fun hullabaloo with Harold B. Lee, who 
only lasted one semester because he couldn't find a place to live anywhere that wasn't the attic of a Presbyterian church. Wow. And awesome. there were a couple other exchange students from Nigeria who came over here as well. But the board of trustees did not like them either. And that experiment were, also ended after a semester. They were exchange students and they still got treated like shit, even though they were literally exchange students. Oh, yeah. Lovely. Lovely. Like they didn't help them find housing at all. And the board of trustees. Oh, my God. No, of course not. Right. Well, they, they found them the Presbyterian church attic. I mean. Oh, sorry. Yep. That's right. I'm sure that was very lovely. Actually, I'm sure it wasn't the church. I'm sure it was probably the Presbyterian church who took pity. <laughs> exactly. And they were like, yeah. Welcome to BYU. Enjoy your cobwebs. So. <laughs> Seriously. I also went looking in like the old records of the Daily Herald. So that's also fun. Daily Herald is like the newspaper for Utah County and Provo was particularly. And here's what one columnist, Joe Watts, had to write about the entire saga. These Negro athletes have hurt themselves immeasurably. And I've hurt the whole position of the Negro college athlete because Texas Western parentheses UTEP chose to recruit these athletes eight Negro athletes to give them board and room tuition books and fees. The school now finds it doesn't have a track team or much of one. Do you think coach Wayne Vandenberg will be out recruiting Negro athletes this year? Like he did in the past several years. Do you think other coaches around the nation will be risking their entire athletic programs by recruiting Negro athletes who might quit of some disagreements they might have with society, the university and the taxpayers of Texas gave these boys editors note fucking yikes. A chance to succeed, a chance to get an education at absolutely no cost to themselves. All that was asked of these Negroes was dependability. The Negroes chose to toss this wonderful gift to the world, to the wind. If they think that they have gained anything by this, they are wrong. They have hurt themselves individually and collectively. Now the pressure is on UTEP administration. If the administration does not handle the situation right, it'll happen again. If the Negro athletes are allowed back on the team, other boycotts will be forthcoming. Not only in track, but also in football and basketball. And not only at UTEP, but, where, but wherever there are Negro athletes. UTEP has an important decision to make, not only for its own athletic program, but for college athletic programs throughout the country. Let's hope they make the right decision. I'm not racist. I just uh, will only be happy if they behave in the exact way that I that I want them to. That's like... I mean, we see that exact same shit right now too. Like, they're, shut they're up not, and dribble. Oh yeah. Well, it, it's but it's that, but it, it's it's wider. It's like yeah. Um, it, it's like you know, we have the good protesters and the bad protesters. I don't right. care about what happened to them. I just care about how they react. I, you know, yeah. Like I, I, I think they deserve the same rights as everyone else. Um, but you know, they don't. They aren't protesting the right way. So you know. That's why we aren't going to give them the same rights as anyone else because they're just going about things the wrong way. The funny thing is this, this like whole like column here that this guy had pretty much just lays bare like the whole argument. Like wh why are college athletes complaining? Like we give them tuition. It's like it, yeah. it completely dehumanizes them too. It's like we give you this. You can't complain. What are you talking about? You want payment for your labor? Yeah. This, this is like no different than the Instagram comments from Donovan Mitchell's page that we were talking about, like in our early episodes, no, not at all. Yeah. It's, it's honestly just like the standard, like, oh, how dare you? Do you know how much we give to you? 
Yeah, yeah. you should be grateful for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I'm also I'm also kind of shocked that I had no idea that Doug Robinson got his start at the Daily Herald. Hey, no, this is actually is. just Joe Watts, who actually like is still like prominent within like the Utah Golf Association. Hell like, yes. I looked this guy up and like, what the fuck? This guy better be dead because good Lord. And it's like, no, you're still alive. Wow. Which like golf, of course, like the famously non-racist golf sport. Yeah. Smacking those just white golf balls. Oh, I got to love it. Um, so after a bunch of racism and all that too, those, those track athletes were kicked off and blah, blah, blah. Not a whole lot would happen until the football season where late towards the 1968 football season, San Jose State, uh, Bay Area School, you know, that's where all the fun always starts, especially in the 1960s. Uh, we're talking about the possibility of of boycotting the last game of the season, which was against BYU. Um, late 19, October 68, word was beginning to spread that players on San Jose State's football team would be boycotting the game. Initially, it was over the coach that would be leaving at the end of the season. The players wanted to say over who would be a replacement. I mean... Perish the thought you want to actually say and who's going to be like your boss. <sighs> the student government pushed for a resolution that would say as much, but also pushed for restrictions against one certain opponent. I want you to guys guess who that is. Mm. It's a mystery. Really? Yeah, it is feeling very mysterious. So I pulled this from the San Jose State student newspaper. Um, the resolution was passed following a long debate after a list of three demands regarding the game, which had been introduced to the council for over for a statement of support by Sheila Young, black junior class representative on behalf of the black students. The three demands were one complete cancellation of the BYU football game and all games thereafter. Also cancellation of BYU athletic events in other areas, such as track and basketball. The reason for this is the to, to completely obliterate any and all ties with known racist institutions, such as BYU Two, the hiring of a black head coach, head football coach to replace coach Anderson, the responsibility for the hiring to be taken on the, on by various individuals on campus represent representative of the black campus community three a position paper put out by the administration athletic department as to the implications of blacks refusal to play the mormons i.e win lose or draw the social and political implications of blacks playing mormons is that the basic tenet of mormonism is that black people are morally and intellectually inferior and doomed to this to the state until there is a revelation to the in the church to change this tenant gross <sighs> Oh my God. It really is kind of incredible to see like what like student activism was accomplishing in the 1960s too, because I can't imagine like you almost had like Soviets like forming on like college football teams. I know. Yeah. Yeah, It's super interesting. Like I can't imagine like, like a student association now in America, like trying to like petition the school, like, uh, Hey, we want to say, and who's going to replace Les miles. Because your choice was bad. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Wow. All right. 1969. So we're through the first year of this fun turmoil. This is where it gets bad. Oh, it's been so good already. I've been, that's, that's, that's great to hear. It really is amazing to see how many schools are like just jumping on, like protesting BYU all at once too. Like it's a, like I was just shocked at like the scale of it all just because like I'd never heard about this before I started like looking into it. Like I knew about like say a couple teams, but never like pretty much every school in the whack January, 1969, there was fear of a sit in protest against BYU basketball at Stanford, which did not materialize, but still was enough to scare BYU 
Early March 1969, news spread that students, mostly members of the Black Student Union at the University of New Mexico, were petitioning their administrators to denounce BYU as a racist institution, cancel an upcoming track meet, and drop BYU from the WAC. Uh, the New Mexico Student Senate voted to sever any connection to BYU by a vote of 11 to 6 on March 21st, 1969, which passed along with this statement. Whereas the policies and organization of Brigham Young University and its atmosphere as a Mormon church-sponsored university results in a de facto segregation against blacks. Therefore, it is resolved by the student senate that UNM disassociate itself and sever all relations, including whack relations, with that institution. Until such time as BYU really relieves this situation. Fun. I got a question mm. for you guys. Yeah, what you got? Sure. Do you guys think that BYU joined the WAC because they thought it stands for whites against colors? <laughs> Jesus. Uh, man. I, I, no, but I'm fairly <laughs> certain you're not the first person to ever use that acronym. So I, yeah. I love. Oh, I just unplugged myself. I love the idea of uh, BYU like saying, oh, we have to go independent, actually, for the TV deals. It's not, like, that's why we're leaving the WAC. <laughs> I'm honestly surprised they didn't go over independent over this. Yeah. Because, like, this was a time to go independent, too. Like, this is when Penn State was independent. This is when Pitt was independent. This was... Honestly. Like, if there was a time for BYU to go independent, it would have been, like, around this time. Oh, man. But they were also really terrible at football, so I don't know if that would have worked. Par for the course for BYU being 50 years late to everything. <laughs> oh man so beginning with the football season in october uh the first protest would come against arizona state where approximately 200 students demonstrated outside of sun devil stadium uh the protest was led by the black liberation organization committee who carried signs and handout leaflets mostly peaceful didn't really raise much of a fuss game was played you uh arizona state clobbered byu because they were they were just a shitty football team at the time the next week was probably the most like historical event ever for that too. Um, actually, it was two weeks later. Uh, it would come when BYU played Wyoming on October 18th, 1969. This was a Wyoming team that was actually good. Through six weeks, it was currently number 12 in the country, completely undefeated. Two years earlier, it had gone to the Sugar Bowl. So this was actually a Wyoming team that was, you know, worth something. If they continued their winning ways, they could have easily gone to another good bowl game like that too. They could have easily gone to the Sugar Bowl again, something like that. Um, the day before the game, uh, Wyoming co coach Lloyd Eaton had dismissed 14 players from the from the team for expressing a desire to wear black armbands during the game. Parrish thought. Eaton would later testify in federal court that he told them that if the program at Wyoming was not satisfactory to them, then perhaps they should better think about going to Morgan State or Grambling, which are both HBCU universities. So, you know. Awesome. He also told them that like you should go get black relief after this and all that. Just like straight up, just like racist stuff. I, man, I mean, I'll save some of my other thoughts for, for, for the end of this, but it's just like, I mean, it's, it's incredible how much this stuff is just completely whitewashed and like, um, yeah, like this, this history about like the school in this area, uh, you know, people here would never would never talk about this type of thing actually happening. I mean, no one knows about those. Yeah, the funny thing is, like, not that long ago, like in 2019, you had like the 50 year like reflective articles about like the Wyoming 14 and everything too. But 
none of them really talked about like what they were really protesting. It was like, oh yeah, yeah. they're protesting BYU. We're just not going to touch that one. Yep. So you just had that essentially. Like they talked about like there was like a priesthood ban, but they didn't ever talk about any other context beyond that. Well, and the way they frame the priesthood ban is like everyone was just like clamoring for like the, we need this change. Like we desperately like, please, like God, talk to the prophet, please, please have the rule changed as if everyone in the church was just so eager for this rule to be changed. And it was such a such a painful experience for this rule to be in place. Like that's the way it was always framed to me when I was younger. Like it was such a trial for the members of the church to have to like suffer through. And I'm sure for some members of the church. It probably was really uncomfortable and difficult, but then you see some of the leadership it like in places like BYU and this was baked into the cake, baby. And they loved it. Oh yeah. And they needed this because that's, I mean, this was the de facto segregation that was taking place. I mean, we talked, we talked a lot about it on Joe's podcast, but like the LDS church's PR department is undefeated. Oh yeah. Like legitimately one of the best PR departments yeah. in world history and the way that they've been able to just completely get away with glossing over church history from like the roots to what's going on now to what we're discussing today. Like it's really quite amazing how good they are at just sweeping things under the rug. Yeah, they don't really talk about how like apostles like Marquis Peterson were going to BYU and giving speeches about how like you should never have interracial marriage. They don't really talk about how J. Reuben Clark, another apostle who's also still on the name of the law school at BYU, uh, pushed for segregated blood banks that continued to like places like LDS hospitals until the 1970s. We never yeah. talk about any of that stuff because it's very uncomfortable to talk about because I mean, Wilk I mean, all these guys have names on, all over that university. Wilkinson. Yeah, as well. Ernest Wilkinson, who, when he released his memoirs to BYU, <laughs> The a lot of faculty members called it mine campus. Jesus. Awesome. That's a great pun, but holy shit. Yeah, that's what they thought about Ernest Wilkinson. And there's plenty of stories about him too, especially like during like say the Red Scare when he was trying to get uh spies to like rat out like professors for being communists. One of them Lovely. just happened to be <laughs> Franklin Covey or Really? Not not Franklin Covey. Yeah. Who was the name of the guy who was uh Sean Covey? No, no, that was a... Is it a Covey? It was a Covey. Whoever wrote, like, the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I can't remember his um, name, but he was one of Wilkinson's spies. Yeah, it's uh, Stephen Covey. Yeah, Stephen Covey. Awesome. Yeah. Like, he was, he was, like, meant to go give, like, write a report about, like, a popular professor who was, like, respected black people on campus. And was, like, and also, like, slightly liberal. Yeah. And it's just mind blowing that there are how many millions of, of church members now. I know they're well over a million. I don't know like the exact number, but we're talking like a huge chunk of people who just like don't know this exists. Oh yeah. Or like have been taught to just not ask questions. Like growing up, it was like you never questioned the church, especially church leadership. And like it's gospel. And if you go against that, you're an apostate and you're evil and just the way that the Mormon church has been able to whip its congregation in line and just do this. Like don't ask, don't tell kind of a thing is yeah. mind blowing. Oh, absolutely. Like it is, it is like, 
it's an inc- it's almost like mind control kind of stuff. It's wild. I mean, we all went through seminary. I mean, they give you yeah. like a yeah. they give you like a, a certain version of history, and like, please don't look anywhere else for history because history is very damaging. Yep. Which is exactly why I never made it through because I asked questions and got kicked out my sophomore year. I just slept. It was easy for me. Yeah. That was the place where I just laid my head down. I was like, all right, I'm just going to pay attention. I don't care. Um, let's see here. Um, on Saturday, the Cowboys, without any black players, defeated BYU, who also had no black players, 40-7. to 7. While the 14 dismissed black players watched from the student section of the stands, fans on both sides of the stadiums chanted, We love Eaton. After the game, Eaton said the victory is one of the most satisfying he's ever had in coaching. In 2009, in a retrospect for Salt Lake Tribune, Man. BYU coach Tommy Hudspeth uh, said, Lloyd Eaton, out of respect for us, didn't suit up his black football players that day. Lloyd was a great gentleman, a great supporter of the conference. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I read that one, too. I was like, what? All right. Well. <sighs> Huge, huge victory for Thank whites you against for colors. Tommy, I wouldn't have said that, but I would have just like said, like, you know what? In retrospect, we could have done things better and then just like said nothing else. But um, keeping it real goes wrong. Casper businessman Dodd Gurdum, which is a wonderful name. <laughs> That's up there with like Bobson Dugnut. <laughs> <laughs> had started a fun Jeff Brain of Clout Hub, sorry. <laughs> had started a fund drive to provide moving expenses for Professor Ken Craven or any other faculty members who opposed Eaton's action. Oh uh, Gurdon would say, We do not care if Wyoming wins another game. We stand behind the coach. Well, obviously, that statement had an expiration date because after removing the black players from Wyoming's team, uh, the Pokes lost their final four games the season, and then went and then went one and nine in 1970, inevitably leading to Eaton's firing. <laughs> Jesus, that's so funny! Oh my god, dude! Yeah, apparently <laughs> removing like much 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 of the talent from your team is not really good if you want to win football games. Oh man. Um. After that, Wyoming just became kind of a mediocre team. It still kind of continues today. Like, they were one of the prime teams in college football in, like, the 1960s. And then right after that, they just sunk like a rock. It's like a bizarro world, remember the Titans. Pretty much, actually. (laughs) Instead of, like, that we must unite speech, just get the fuck off the team. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Let's see here. They will not replace us. After the 1969 season on November 25th, uh, the Cheyenne QB Club would host the Cowboy Night for the Wyoming Cowboys at the Little America Hotel. Uh, one of Coach Eaton's guests would be Judge Irwin Kerr, Edwin Kerr, who in the federal lawsuit against the University of Wyoming and Eaton would say, From my observations of almost half a century in Wyoming, I have never known of any prejudice against any race in the state of Wyoming. And I think the fact that the coach went out and solicited and gave scholarships to a large number of colored people is strong evidence that he is not prejudiced against any race. This was a lawsuit by those players against the university of Wyoming and coach Eaton and obviously was, was uh, dismissed by this coach, by this judge who likes to hang out with coach Eaton. So, you know, no conflicts of interest there or anything like that. Very impartial, blah, blah, blah. Like this is like when when Trump supported would say Trump can't be racist. Ben Carson's in his cabinet. It, Herschel Walker or, supports oh him. What God. are you talking yeah. about? He hot like he couldn't have been 
racist in the 70s and 80s and 90s he hired so like he gave he gave a random black person two hundred thousand dollars it doesn't matter if he like purposely was discriminating and not letting any black people live in his housing projects that he was building but um wasn't that the exact argument that like the that clippers owner was giving to Yes, yes, it is. A, yes. It is literally the exact same thing. Hundred percent. Yeah, what Donald Sterling was saying. Oh, every time I think about him, I just think about that deposition. Sir, is this your handwriting? Uh, the next game would be against San Jose State, November eighth. Um, it would be two weeks later too, because it'd be what you had to buy or something. I don't know. I didn't really take a look at the schedule. It was fifty years ago. Uh. San Jose State, uh, when they arrived at BYU for November 8th's game, members of the team and coaching staff wore black armbands. As a show of solidarity with Wyoming, they'd also worn it the previous week when San Jose State played Wyoming in solidarity with the Wyoming 14 because San Jose State is a really cool school, and I think that's like my favorite Mountain West team now. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So they all wore black armbands, um, and they wore them in solidarity against Wyoming, like I said. Uh, San Jose State players explained their protest by saying BYU being sponsored by the Mormon institution must realize that this sponsorship makes it the benefactor and somewhat the perpetrator of attitudes which will lead men into an eternal world of inharmonious relationships, which is one of the most like profound things I read during this entire thing. Anyway, as yeah, Newsweek really report is. after the game, some 200 BYU fans donned red armbands in a counter, counter movement to protest San Jose State's lack of Indian students as a joke. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Dude. Okay. Yeah. So like the conservative white grievance thing has just gone back like 50, 60 years. It's been always like this. Yeah. It's just like, it's, it's what and like, you know, time is a flat circle and history repeats itself. Just so on and so forth forever. The very next week, uh, November 12th, 1969, Stanford University President Kenneth Pitzer, acting on recommendations from the Campus Human Relations Committee, declared, Today barred any new commitments to intercollegiate competition with institutions sponsored by the Mormon Church. Uh, Kenneth Pitzer, Stanford's president, defended the decision by stating, It is a policy of Stanford University not to schedule events with institutions which practice discrimination on the basis of race or national origin, or which are a affiliated with or sponsored by institutions which do so killer um the statement from president pitzer uh, said church officials had confirmed that black men could not become priests and also quoted the new york times article saying that byu had only three black students among the enrollment of twenty-five thousand, which is was 0.012 percent of the byu student body like you couldn't even like register a tenth of a percent yeah and yeah Wilkinson accused Stanford of bigotry and tried to have supporters oust President Pitzer. Oh my God. Isn't that, is, that's just all, yeah, of course. It's the bigotry thing. I mean, currently, like, there's the, um, the Equal Amendments, or, wait, the, the Equal Rights Act or Amendment is like being pushed again by Democrats. And uh, Chris Stewart here, one of our incredible representatives, is like, um, you know, he's like, I'd support that as long as we do my version instead, which basically just gives religious institutions the ability to discriminate. <laughs> it's like the equality like, we for want, all act. Yeah, said the equality, equality act. for that's right. And the LDS church jumped on that and supported it all the way because, of course, they did. 
Yeah. Um, in my research on this one too, I found a wonderful article from 2012 about a famous BYU alum discussing the Stanford protests. When Mitt Romney's old school, Stanford, announced at the end of 1969 that it would boycott athletic competitions from BYU, Romney was incensed. I remember sitting in the football stadium with Mitt. He and Ann were sitting next to me, and I do remember Mitt being angry with Stanford, said Cameron, Ann's one-time suitor. He felt like it was A, naive, and B, sort of bigoted, narrow-minded in perspective. Lovely. I always love it when Mittens pops up at weird places. Why am I not surprised? Why am I not surprised? Because he's the same guy who supported the Vietnam War at Harvard. Yep. It's like he he was all about protesting. Just, you know, <laughs> we need to like bathe more children in napalm. Oh, my God. He's just, you know, he's got this long history of standing up for the little guy. And I just I got to respect it. <laughs> he had that tweet the other day that was pretty much like, we can't raise the minimum wage because it would destroy jobs. I'm like, that's your entire, like entire career. Isn't that what you did? It's like, you had no problem it's... destroying jobs when you made a buck off of it. Yeah, honestly. Yeah. That, that that's fucking abhorrent for them to talk about, for him to talk about destroying jobs. Also the whole, like if we raise the minimum wage and it, it destroys jobs, that's why the jobs being the indicator of how the economy is doing is fucking stupid. Because if someone has to work two jobs right now, because they are making minimum wage at both, and then they double their wage because the minimum wage gets raised and they, and they get to quit the other one. That's one job lost. Is that bad? No, it's not. Just shut the fuck up. Mitt. But always, but if we pay people wages where they can afford things, then uh, why why aren't you thinking about the small business tyrants, Kyle? I know. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's dumb. how do you not think of the landlords in a situation like this? It's it's a goddamn shame. So at the end of the 1969 football season, the Los Angeles Times wrote about the protests. It seemed to follow BYU at every school they played. Uh, school officials were allowed to comment on what they felt about the protests in retrospect of the previous season. Uh, athletic, athletic director Floyd Millett commented, there is no prejudice here. It seems so unjustified. Uh, school officials, uh, this one just makes me laugh. School officials cite the presence of Jews, Indians, Spanish Americans, and two Negroes among the school's 24,000 students, 95% of whom are Mormon. When you have to like, lovely. When you have to do that game, you might as well just don't. Like you just sound honestly, you just sound horrible when you do it. Just like, well, have you considered there's Spanish Americans among us? Yeah, which honestly is a weird framing of everything too. Just because like, I don't know, was that like the 1960s framing of like saying someone was Latino? I think so. Yeah, <laughs> that's bizarre. Whatever. Um, also, basketball coach Stan Watts was quoted by saying, Negroes who have contacted BYU either failed to meet the school's ath- academic standards or simply weren't good enough players. Of, of course. Yeah, of course. That's I'm sure that's right. Uh, OK, so that's the end of 1969. Are we having fun yet? I'm having so much fun going through this. I'm just loving that this university is just a stone's throw away. Um, at the end of the football season, the new year did not bring about the end of protests. Instead, the new focus was BYU's basketball team, along with many other Olympic sports. Um, on January 8th, 1970, before a competition against Arizona, students from the University of Arizona delayed the game for 10 minutes as chaos ensued. 
Uh, Sports Illustrated wrote a great uh, like recap of this one. Disorder developed after the Arizona president in a strongly worded statement refused to cancel the game on the grounds that the issue was irrelevant to the athletic contest. Vandals poured light air fluid on the gym floor and set it afire, causing $100 worth of damage. About 50 protesters yelling stop the game tried to ram down the gym's main entrance only to be stopped by a solid line of police and security guards. All five of Arizona starters, three of them black, wore black wristbands. And with with one minute left in... Ah, sorry. With one minute and 40 seconds left in the first half, nine blacks walked on the floor, temporary stopping play. Arizona eventually won 90 to 77. <laughs> Normal. <laughs> I'm just surprised they like, played a game uh, after they lit the court on fire. <laughs> on, yeah. Yeah. Me too. Um, later on in that same month, a uh, black student... The Black Students Union of the University of Washington started a campaign for the school to sever all ties of BYU as long as the LDS Church maintained its policy of denying the priesthood for blacks. On January 20th, before a scheduled meet of BYU and Washington's gymnastic teams, protesters poured oil, eggs, garbage, and ketchup on the mats and overturned chalk stands. Uh, which pretty much is like, stop the meet. You're not going to do that with those mats yeah. now. Uh, following the protests of the gymnastics meet, the... Athletic Department for the University of Washington and school president said they would reevaluate the con- relationship with BYU. Um, then we have on February 5th, the basketball game against Colorado State, which is a real humdinger. Um, oh, man. I found most of this from an article from the Coloradoan, which is a newspaper in Fort Collins. And it was just by Matt L. Stevens, who went back like 50 years later and like interviewed a bunch of people who po- took part in the, in the, the uh, protest. And it's quite interesting. Um, Jim Starr, the president of the Association of Students of Colorado State University, and his friend Paul Chambers, president of the Black Student Alliance, negotiated a deal with athletic director Perry Moore to protest BYU and the practices of the LDS Church weeks beforehand. It wasn't until the morning of the game that Moore informed Starr it wasn't in the school's best interest to allow a demonstration during halftime. Moore had insisted to move the allowed protest time to prior to the game in an effort to stop any possible disruptions to the game. It did not work. Uh... (laughs) As Stevens writes, about 50 students, black, white, and Latino, began to congregate along the sideline around midcourt shortly before halftime. They held signs that said, end racism in the Western Athletic Conference, and CSU per- perpetuates racism. At the same time, the Cougar- at the time that the, the half ended, the Cougarettes, the BYU cheer squad, took the court for a halftime performance. So did the protesters. <laughs> oh, great. Rush, rush. Versus Jets. Yeah, the dean of students told the students to clear the court, and when they did not, the doors to the gym flew open and was followed by Fort Collins riot police. <laughs> oh shit! No way. Jim uh, oh, Starr, one of the one of the uh, protests we talked about before, said, "Quote: Once the police came out, students stopped coming back into the stands. It was more curiosity to see what was uh, what was what this was all about. I don't see anything in particular triggered the start of the police officers marching slowly up the whole width of the court." It was as if the police were ready to stop a riot, but there was no riot. <laughs> and Starr then believed, like, he believes that police were responsible for the violence that followed. Uh, the cops cleared the court, and then someone threw something resembling a railroad iron into the failings of cops, which bounced off of one of them, spun him like a top, and then hit a photographer in the head. Gave him a pretty serious <laughs> gash, knocked him out. He wasn't killed, though, thankfully. Like, they said the doctors said, like, if it would have been, like, one inch, like, below in his temple, he would have been dead, but... Luckily, that did not happen. Christ. Jesus. 
Following the piece of railroad iron, someone threw a Molotov cocktail that failed to ignite, which was then quickly stomped out by the riot police. Students then rushed the court and then chaos ensued and doors became bottlenecks while cops became aggressive and started attacking the protesters. Um, <laughs> so 15 people were arrested in this one, but no one went to jail or anything. Most of them were just given like disorderly conduct, like uh, citations, which is, a weird departure from today, essentially. Like, if that happened today, like, they'd all be facing time. Oh, absolutely. Citations for this type of thing? Come on. Yeah, there's stories in here, too, like, about, like, yeah, I went to jail, and all my buddies were there with, like, the $100 bail, and I just left that night. I didn't even spend, like, five minutes in there. Dude, I mean, yeah, it's just, like, you learn about things like that and just, like, how awful we've made things intentionally just to, like, fuck with people. Like, yeah, it's, it's just disgusting. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, all told BYU lost 94 to 71. Darn. After the game, Stan Watts, uh, said these people aren't after us. They're after America. Of course. That sounds familiar. That's weird. I don't like BYU's uh, head basketball coach, Stan Watts all that much. If you can tell by now. Seems he seems great. He seemed he seemed great. Is he still alive? Uh, no, he's been dead for a while. Rest in darn. <laughs> yeah. Uh, allegedly, he no real proof he was racist or anything like that. Just allegedly speculative. <laughs> blah blah blah. Um, March eighth, Washington decides not to schedule BYU in any future sporting events beyond what is already contracted out. In response, President Wilkinson and BYU, along with the church, buy a full-page ad in the Seattle Times, allowing the church to explain themselves and their position. It includes the following passages. There is not a large number of black students on our campus, and that is a result of their decisions, and not a result of our policies. Their decisions are undoubtedly influenced by the fact that there are no blacks living within 35 miles of campus. If that woman didn't want to be raped, she shouldn't have been wearing a skirt at the party. In order to find out if, once again, I, we really have to point out back to that student that had to live in the attic of a Presbyterian church just to go to BYU yeah. for a semester. Yeah, colleges yeah. famously only for the people who live 35 miles around the college. <laughs> in order to find out if racial discrimination was practiced at BYU, the civil, this is another uh, excerpt of this, by the way. The Civil Rights Office of the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare made a thorough study of all the practices on the BYU campus which related to possible discrimination. The civil rights team included a black, a Jew, and a Mexican-American. It just feels like the weirdest thing ever, like, include, like, that's, yeah, there was a, there was, you, ethnic people studied us. It was fine. That's, like, the start of every bad joke. It really is. And, like, I honestly think they listed like that for that same reason. They also listed the federal case between Coach Eaton and the Wyoming 14 as proof they aren't racist, and even name-checked Edwin Kerr as, as well. Ah, lovely. So everything just always just comes back around this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just self-referential in a circle. Like, oh, we can't be racist because of this. Oh, we can't be racist because of this. Oh, we can't be racist of this. And you're the bigot for calling us racist because I've been absolved by this racist judge in Wyoming who ruled against the racism because he doesn't believe in racism either. It's just, it's so disgusting, dude. It's a <laughs> fucking circle jerk. It really is. Oh, my God. So that was pretty much the end of the protest there. And I got some like pro, uh, like epilogue <laughs> stuff to pretty much talk about that. 
Um, the protests start tapering off in 1971. There were a couple, including USC and Oregon State in basketball, but no major protests like in the last couple of years. There yeah. were no more riot cops, unfortunately. So that was good, I guess. Um, there were a few reasons for this one. First of all, BYU finally hired black faculty members. The first being Winetta Willis-Martin, who would join the faculty to teach black studies in December of 1970, which like years before would have been them third of like, they tried to hire one professor who was black in like 1964 and like Ernest Wilkinson, like almost blew a fucking gasket. Um, let's see here. There were also black athletes. Ronald white and Benny Smith would join the football team in 1971. And in 1974, the first black basketball player would join BYU would as Gary Batiste would suit up for the Cougars. Um, BYU would not play Washington football until 1985 and 1980 in basketball. They would not play Stanford until 2001 in basketball and in football in 2003. Uh, when BYU played at Stanford in 2004, the Stanford marching band and the university were forced to apologize for doing a halftime show mocking the past use of polygamy. <laughs> Members of, of the band appeared in wedding veils with the band with the band manager kneeling and proposing to each one in turn. As the announcer referred to marriage as a sacred bond that exists between a man and a woman... And a woman. Lovely. And a woman. And a woman. And a woman. And a woman. (laughs) (laughs) I just applaud the creativity. That's pretty good. In 1978, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints announced that they were repealing the prohibition of black men holding the priesthood within the church nearly 130 years following the policy put forth by Brigham Young. For years afterwards, the protests and reactions by so many schools towards BYU when the church would fuel resentment and the feeling of inferiority, especially among its secular neighbor, the University of Utah. Uh, when the University of Utah was selected to join the Pac-12 Athletic Conference in 2010, Deseret News columnist and longtime BYU beat writer Dick Harmon would say the following on ESPN. They have a great program, a good coaching staff. They have a great reputation, the Sugar Bowl victory over Alabama that added to the resume, but primarily they were not BYU and they were not tied to the Mormon church. And that's probably the bottom line. BYU has better facilities, a bigger football stadium, the last 40 years, a better tradition in football and has dominated the Mountain West Conference and the WAC in total athletic supremacy for decades. I love that. In 2014, mm-hmm. the LDS Church would approve of an essay on their website that would declare that there was no doctrinal basis for the policy of denying priesthood to black men, but gave no reason as to why the policy continued for so long. <laughs> As the church essay on race states, over time, church leaders and members advanced many theories to explain the priesthood and temple restrictions. None of these explanations is accepted today as the official doctrine of the church. They just make it up as they go, man. They really do. Wasn't that they fun? They really do. That really was. And so, I mean, we mentioned that the church has such a good PR department. I, I want to go through what the church currently says about the race and the priesthood. They, I mean, as, as people learned about the internet and that all this, and they learned about the internet, they realized that they had to get ahead of a lot of these things. So when you Google like, you know, Mormon church, black priesthood or something like that, you, this is one of the first results. They have great SEO. Um, so it's it's called race and the priesthood. And it says in theology and practice, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints embraces the universal human family. Latter-day Saint scripture and teacher and teachings affirm that God loves all of his children and makes salvation available to all. God created the many diverse races and ethnicities and esteems them all equally. As the Book of Mormon puts it, all are alike unto God. I seem to remember some other stuff, but 
Um, that's fine. So like it goes on to say the church and organization of the, the structure and organization of the church encourage racial integration. Um, and this part's kind of funny, but it says like, uh, according to the geographical boundary of, the, of their local ward and congregation people, like that's how people meet. And by definition, this means that the racial, economic and demographic composition of the Mormon congregations generally mirrors that of the wider community. Um, and this is where it starts to reference some of like the, uh, the older stuff, but it says, despite this modern reality for much of its history from the mid 1800s until 1978, the church did not ordain men of black African descent to its priesthood or allow black men or women to participate in temple endowment or sealing ordinances. The church was established in 1830. So this is where the PR starts. And this is something I've heard tons of times. The church was established in 1830 during an era of great racial division in the United States. At the time, many people of African descent lived in slavery and racial distinctions and prejudice were not just common, but customary among white Americans. Those realities, though unfamiliar and disturbing today, which is another funny thing to say, influenced all aspects of people's lives, including their religion. Many Christian churches of that era, for instance, were segregated along racial lines. From the beginnings of the church, people of every race and, the, and ethnicity could be baptized and received as members. Toward the end of his life, church founder Joseph Smith openly opposed slavery. There has never been a church-wide policy of segregated congregations. Let me control F and do Brigham. Yeah. Oh, he's in there because they pretty much just throw it all on him. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, it just rules that this is a church that's completely predicated on the word of God. But it <laughs> like the entire onus of this is just like, you know, these were different times with different people. Yeah. So, so to be clear, um, they went backwards. So Joseph Smith was fine. Was he, he loved black people, welcomed them into the church because he just wanted as many people to join as possible, which I'm, I'm sure. But then why did Brigham Young uh, revert that? Why did he believe in slavery himself? That's that's super interesting. Well, it was also because like Joseph Smith was like trying to endure himself to like Illinois politics as well. And Right. He was he literally ran for president. Yeah. And he so. ran on like an abolitionist ticket because like Illinois politics was a lot of like abolitionist thought. I mean, that's where Abraham Lincoln came from. So yeah. like it's no like wonder why he did that too is because it's like just read your audience. Like if he was in Missouri again, I'm sure he would have probably went the other way. Yep. Yeah. So this is, yeah, this is, yeah. So it talks about his death and then it says in a private church council, three years after Smith's death, Brigham Young praised Q Walker Lewis, a black man who had been ordained of the priesthood saying we have one of the best elders, an African (laughs) in in 1852. uh, That just reminded me of Trump saying like, (laughs) look at my African American. (laughs) Uh, exactly what came to mind so this is interesting um in 1852 president brigham young publicly announced that men of black african descent could no longer be ordained to the priesthood though thereafter blacks continued to join the church through baptism and receiving of the gift of the holy ghost following the death of brigham young subsequent church presidents restricted blacks from receiving the temple endowment or being married in the temple over time, church leaders and members advanced many theories to explain the priesthood and temple restrictions. None of these explanations, none of these explanations is accepted today as the official doctrine of the church. This is weird. Huh. I wonder why 1852 was such a weird year for him to uh, yeah. approve that. I'm sure it had nothing to do with the fact that that was the same year that Utah became a territory and also that 
the <laughs> slavery became legal within the Utah Territory? That would be weird. That would be weird. That's that's so strange. So, I mean, that's a really interesting thing in particular that they straight up say, like, this prophet and many of the subsequent prophets just were had no basis in church doctrine. Like, that's the official line of the church now. Isn't that, isn't that interesting that they have just completely, like disappeared the whole like this was a commandment or this was from god even though that's the ostensible explanation but now it's just like yeah you know they just did that and there's no and we don't accept any reason as to why as part of the official doctrine of the church currently here's some weird subtext i think would probably be added in that too on january 5th 1852 brigham young territorial governor of utah addressed the joint session of the utah territorial legislature he discussed the ongoing trial of don pedro leon lujan and the importance of explicitly indicating the true policy of, for slavery in Utah. He argued that owning slaves was a way to improve the condition of the Africans because it would teach them how to live a useful life. He said that it would give them a platform to build off of and allow them to build off, build as far as the curse of Ham would allow them to pro progress. He argued that service was necessary, honorable, important for all societies. However, he urged moderation by not treating Africans as beasts of the field or to elevate them to equality with the whites, which was against God's will. Somehow mm. that didn't make the essay. That's, that's really interesting. But I mean, even this article talks specifically about what you said, like about um, the Utah territory ship or whatever they're going for. It says like in 1850 U S Congress created the territory and U S president appointed Brigham Young to the position of territorial governor. Southerners who had converted to the church and migrated to Utah with their slaves raised the question of slavery's legal status in the territory. So people from uh, Dixie, Robert Covington <laughs> and, to be exact. Yep. In two speeches delivered before the Utah territorial legislature in January and February of 1852, Brigham Young announced a policy restricting men of black African descent from priesthood ordination. At the same time, President Young said that some future day, black church members would have all the privilege and more enjoyed by other members. He that's did not say that. That's interesting that they put that in there. <laughs> Um, but also at the same time said the justification for this restriction echoed the widespread ideas about racial inf inferiority that had been used to argue for the legalization of black quote servitude in the territory of Utah, according to one view, which had been pro promulgated in the United States from at least the 1730s blacks descended from the same lineage as, as the biblical Cain who slew his brother Abel. Those who accepted this view believed that God's quote curse on Cain was the mark of a dark skin. Black servitude was sometimes viewed as a second curse placed upon Noah's grandson Canaan as a result of Ham's indiscretion toward his father. Although slavery was not a significant factor in Utah's economy and was soon abolished, the restriction on priesthood ordinations remains. It was abolished the by the civil war. Yeah, it wasn't like the state. Like you know what, we should get rid of this. <laughs> the free market decided that slavery wasn't. It was the invisible uh, hand of the Union lying? Army. Oh man, you always lying. Why you always lying? See, that's the fun thing they talk about too. Is like, well, you know, one day they'll be able. There's like there were there was nothing in like Brigham Young's statement about that. So like, we should care for them, but never elevate them along. Above what they're allowed to progress, and like that seems pretty clear. Like, don't put them on our level. 
Yeah, it, like it, it got even weirder in certain points where like David O. McKay said like in in the 50s or something that like, oh no, like the church, like this is only on Africans, like black Africans, like Pacific Islanders, like brown people um, and Australian Abor- Aborigines who are black, um, they can get the priesthood, <laughs> which uh yeah um in south africa president mckay reversed a prior policy that required prospective priesthood holders to trace their lineage out of africa so they were literally having them yeah. <laughs> doing eugenics i mean in order to i think I, I said this to you guys too in like the chat too like the practices of like missionaries in brazil who were like had to go and like try and like trace like facial and like and like structural like features on a person to see if they were had African heritage or not. I got to find that quote. Hold on. It's Jesus it's, Christ. it's not great. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it's so bad. So um, nevertheless, given the long history of withholding the priesthood from men of black African descent, church leaders believe that there, that a revelation from God was needed to alter the policy. And they made ongoing efforts to understand what should be done. After praying, praying for guidance, president McKay did not feel impressed to lift the ban. But as the church grew worldwide, its overarching mission to, quote, go ye therefore and teach all nations seemed increasingly incompatible with the priesthood and temple restrictions. Yep. The Book of Mormon (laughs) declared that the gospel message of salvation should go forth to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. While there were no limits on whom the Lord should had invited to partake of his goodness through baptism, the priesthood and temple restrictions created significant barriers, a point made increasingly evident as the church spread in international locations with diverse and mixed racial heritages. Funny. You should yeah. bring up David O. McKay because there's actually a story that was told to me by a professor from U- from Southern Utah who was up here for like the Sunstone Conference. I was working with him because I was working at like the special collections department at the University of Utah. We were just going through like old minutes of like apostle meetings or something. And he was telling me a story too, like in 1969, like David O. McKay tried to end the priesthood ban there. He did it while Harold B. Lee, Ezra Taft Benson, and Joseph F. Smith were out of town. Like him and like no way. Him and like first president, like Hubie Brown, were trying to do this. But Ezra Taft Benson, Harold B. Lee, and Joseph F. Smith like changed their flight plans like last minute to come back. (laughs) Do not do this. Now I don't can't really verify that story for sure, just because like it's a lot of like conjecture and hearsay. But it sounds like something that would happen. So allegedly speculative. It's like Harlan Hill going to Philadelphia, but successful. As far as so interesting because they, uh, so they talk about Brazil and Brazil in particular presents many challenges because, you know, people always had this like very strict vision as to who was black and who was not. Oh, I found that. I found that quote. I got, I got to read this one. Go. So this is by Joanna Brooks. who's a professor at South, uh, South Dakota state who, uh, it's kind of studies a lot about Mormons. She is actually an active, active Mormon too, which surprised me with some of the things she wrote. Um, in the 1940s and 50s, after abandoning instruction to teach only Brazilians of European descent, church leaders in Brazil developed circulars that directing missionaries to screen potential converts for black African lineage by scrutinizing phenotypic features, hair, skin, hair and skin features at the door when tracting and to avoid teaching potential converts of African descent. The missionary lessons as delivered in Brazil also included a special dialogue scripted to detect African lineage and to teach converts that Negroes were not eligible for the priesthood. Converts of African descent who persisted had their baptismal certificates marked with a B for black, C for cane, or N for Negro, or similar a practice that persisted into the 1970s. 
C for Kane. Yep. Jesus, like they're straight just going like 666 Mark of the Beast on this. Yeah, they pretty much yeah. just bond to the whole like Curse of Cain thing or the Curse of well, Ham. Holy shit. Yeah, which, yeah. And that makes like their view, like when they got into South America, so interesting because there are so many like Afro South Americans, especially in Brazil. And they're like uh, trying to determine which one of these Latin American gets the priesthood or not, depending on if they came from like slaves or, or not. And, um, yeah, so it, it just got super convoluted, and, um, and and so they they you know go through the whole thing where they like you know the quorum of the twelve went to the upper room of the of the temple and prayed for however long, and they finally came out and said, okay, like uh, black people are good now, like Africans are good, um, and you know of course let's see what year was that 78 yeah and yeah and so it wasn't just like people who were just clamoring i mean again like i as i said there i'm sure there were there were some that's made their lives really difficult but there were many like people high up in the church who i mean this was what they wanted and this until it became literally a roadblock for expansion of the church um you know that's 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 it, it it needed to be changed at that at that time but it says today the church disavows theories advanced in the past that black skin is a sign of divine disfavor or curse or that it reflects unrighteous actions in a pre-mortal life that mixed race marriages are a sin or that blacks or people of any other race or ethnicity are inferior in any way to anyone else church leaders today unequivocally condemn all racism past and present in any form which is um, which is funny to me because when i was in seminary in 2006 i was definitely taught that you should avoid interracial like, like relationships. Like yeah. I was taught, like mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not even joking about that too. Like it was essentially just like, listen, you might have too many cultural differences between you to actually make it work. You should maybe, I don't know, stick with someone who's like more kind of close with you. Yeah. hundred percent. But it's always framed in like the cultural differences. Like, I mean, we just want yeah. what's best for you. Yeah. Which is funny yeah. if it wouldn't be like backed up by like a century worth of like interracial marriage and relationships or either basis for like excommunication or like execution. I really just think you should marry someone who lives in a 35 mile radius of where we live. <laughs> you're, Which like you, you're in Provo, you, you Utah. Still, you still see the after effects of this all throughout Utah. Like Utah is one of the most homogenized states in the nation and it is it's just like these communities of like literally where redline. you you yeah you could yeah literally not only redline, redline but like you could go the entire day without seeing a person of color yeah and like you cannot tell me this was not by design no of course not it was, and like it was this is a lot of this is just carrying on tradition yep Wow. So, yeah, I mean, it's even funny that at this point, the church is throwing Brigham Young under the bus where they're just straight up like, yeah, no, like this wasn't there was no actual foundation for any of this. I mean, <laughs> other than- I mean, that's what happens after like 50 years of just like not talking about him at all. I mean, like when you go to church, they never talk about Brigham Young, except for no. like he led the pioneers. You might sing his name in a song. Yeah. yeah. He led the pioneers and we will never say another word about him again. This is the place. That's all he says. Yeah, that's all he said. This is the place, and he was mute until he died. Yeah. 
please don't look yeah. at the general discourses. No. <laughs> well, I think that's a, that's a good place to end it, but man, I, I mean, there's a lot to be said about, uh, the history of, um, well, racism in the state. So I highly like once we, once the uh, episode with Joe gets published, I think this will be a nice tandem episode to listen to um, with this one upon release. Because, I mean, it, it's it, and it's really interesting talking to someone who knows nothing about Mormon culture or like Utah, really. And then you get to tell them all the things that happened. Um, so yeah, that's uh, it's going to be really great to listen to alongside this one. So Jordan, thanks for uh, doing a little research project for us. I, I feel worse off having known all this, but I'm appreciative <laughs> that you gave me all this information. I will probably do research on something a little more fun next time. Yeah. That's What's, not, oh, man. I, I need to find like some sort of like kooky guy who just like was just crazy for his entire life. And everyone was just like, Oh, there goes crazy bill. He, yeah. We fun. should do, we should do like a, I mean, like even like the people in like the good politics people in Utah like had horrible endings to their lives here. So, like Joe Hill, I'm <laughs> just like I was like I was like I was gonna say I was like I would be cool to do a Joe Hill episode, but that was also really depressing. But um, maybe we'll do like an urban myths of Utah type thing. Oh, that would uh, be fun. It's like haunted houses or something. Just yeah, anything we can talk about that's the not... Indian school in Brigham Young or in, uh, Brigham, in City. Brigham City. Yeah, that's always a fun one. The extremely oral history of the Nutty Putty Caves. Oh, no. I don't think we can talk about Nutty Putty Caves. That's also very sad. Yeah, not good. Why are they sealed now? Um, Reasons. Oh, boy. Well, we had to build some mountain bike trails. Tough, 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 tough. (laughs) All right, boys, it's been a pleasure. Um, We'll catch everyone next time. See ya.